If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. There's a story that's traditionally told about the history of Britain from the end of the Roman period in the early 5th century through to the arrival of the Vikings at the end of the 8th century. And it's a story of coalescing kingdoms that led inexorably towards the rise of Wessex as the last man standing. However, according to Thomas Williams, the author of a new book on the era, the story is far more complicated than that. David Musgrove put in a call to Thomas to find out more. So today I am joined by Thomas Williams, who has written an excellent new book called Lost Realms, Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings. Thomas, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Really good to have you. So um, I very much enjoyed the book. Um, uh, it puts a kind of a different spin on the story of Britain between the end of the Roman period and the start of the Viking era. So that's kind of from the early 5th century through to the end of the 8th. And, and what's interesting about your book is, I guess, the subtitle, Histories, rather than History. So you're trying to tell lots of disparate stories, I suppose, about what was going on during that period. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something I, I actually fought with my publisher for, for that, that particular subtitle, because it's really, really key that 
the traditional way of understanding this period is to see it through the lens of very particular kingdoms that, that came out the other end in a, in a powerful and strong position and the way that that then feeds into later narratives of, of British history. But I wanted to emphasise that that's only one story that, 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 that you can tell about this period. There are actually lots and lots of others that often get overlooked. So that's, that's a really key aspect of what the book's all about. Yeah, and I, I found that very interesting. So could you give us a little bit of a sense of the, the kind of standard narrative, this, this simplistic single-line approach that, that you've just um, cited there? What, what, have, what have people traditionally thought about uh, the way the, the narrative progresses? Sure. Okay, so sort of the generally accepted uh, story of those centuries would begin with the collapse of the Roman Empire, traditionally dated to 410 AD. And that's seen in terms of a a fairly precipitous economic and, and social collapse that's really compounded by waves of uh, Germanic, in inverted commas, migrants crossing the North Sea uh, in the in the absence of the, the Roman uh, military who, who've left the island um, and taking over large swathes of, of, of southern Britain, driving the, the indigenous Britons out of their their lands and into the highlands of Wales and and the north of England in particular. This progresses to a a situation where you have what become known as Anglo-Saxons in what is now England, Britons everywhere else. And these Anglo-Saxons then coalesce into kingdoms. Um, The big players being Wessex in in the southwest, Mercia in the Midlands, Northumbria in the northeast, East Anglia in East Anglia, uh, and, and a, a number of, of, of other slightly smaller players. These kingdoms then sort of fight amongst themselves for supremacy over the rest of the Britain, uh, right, sorry, the rest of the island of Britain and with the Britons uh, until eventually the Viking era begins and the whole thing gets thrown up in the air again, with ultimately Wessex coming out as the only, only power standing. And then the rest of English history sort of flows on from that, that triumph of, of, of King Alfred over the Vikings and, and everything that, that follows on from that. So that's, that, in a nutshell, is sort of how the period is generally understood. Um, what I've omitted from that, of course, is the, the Christian dimension. Um, and the way that that is typically seen is that the migration brought a, a, a non-Christian people, a non-Christian Germanic people, into the island of Britain. Um, subsequently to be converted from the year 597 when Augustine's mission from Rome arrives in in Kent uh, to evangelise the heathen English. The English then get Christianity really quickly, uh, they get the right kind of Christianity, and then they spread that idea through the rest of Britain as well. So there's a sort of a a divine mandate to the the progress of, of English history as well that develops from it. So you can sort of get a sense from this and this is an extremely simplified version of a very simplified narrative, um, that the whole thing is extremely Anglo-centric uh, and driven with a sort of an underpinning of, of Christian myth-making as well. So so that's really, it's a very neat and, and, and tidy approach though, isn't it? It all, all funnels nicely into Alfredian Wessex and then on we go into sort of a Whiggish view of history, I suppose. So it kind of, it makes sense, doesn't it? That's a, that's a, that's a good narrative to, to follow. Now, look, before we, before we go and uh, sort of dissect that a bit, I need to pick you up on a few things. You said um, the right sort of Christianity for, for the English. How, 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 what, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, this is an idea that we really, really get from... Um, 
from the Northumbrian monk Bede, who writes his ecclesiastical history of the English people in uh, around about 730 AD. And he sees very much the Christianity of the the Britons, the the, the native British, the Romano-British, as being substandard in in a number of ways, sort of borderline heretical. Um, in particular, he thinks they they do their the monks do their their tonsures in the wrong way, which is really really bad in, in Bede's opinion. They calculate the date of Easter in the wrong way, uh, again in in Bede's opinion, and and these are big issues of their time. They they seem fairly trivial from our perspective, but but for 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 writers like Bede, they were they were important. But the the Christianity that was delivered to the the English was a sort of papally sanctioned Roman version, the, the, the authorised version of Christianity. So he very much draws a distinction between the, the sort of right sort of Christianity that the, the English are receiving from, from Rome and this sort of degenerate, backward, weird, jumbled form of Christianity that, that was encountered on the island already. It's, it's a horribly sort of prejudiced idea of, of how things were. Um Okay, so so we've clarified that point. You also use the the the, the phrase Anglo-Saxons. I know in your book you kind of you, you you try not to do that, and you explain why. Do you want to just give us a, a your take on that on that contentious phrase? Yeah. Now, okay. So this is a, a thorny issue, and and it, it bleeds into to modern politics in a number of different directions. But I think the problem with it for this period, the, the particularly the earlier half of the period, that the 400 to 600 bracket, is that nobody at that point in time would have imagined themselves to be an Anglo-Saxon. I think, I think basically nobody ever really imagined themselves to be an Anglo-Saxon. That's a, that's a back projection. And it rather implies um, a, a, a uniform ethnic identity for the communities that were developing in southern Britain over the course of this period. It's a it's a prejudicial judgment, if you like. If we decide they're Anglo-Saxons before we've actually thought about the processes that created these, these new kingdoms or realms, then we've sort of jumped ahead of ourselves, if you like. Um, yes, there were almost certainly people from Saxony, people from Anglia, but there were also people from Frisia and southern Scandinavia uh, and, and probably several other places uh, as well. And of course, there were also native Britons who remained in southern Britain and, and weren't all driven uh, driven away. So... The idea that we can sort of unproblematically label everybody who's 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 left as an Anglo-Saxon is is misleading. Is misleading. So so on that on that basis alone, I think it's, it makes sense to try to avoid using the term um, as much as possible. It isn't possible all of the time because it's so embedded in in the academic literature and the way that we label types of artifacts and so on. But I think it makes sense intellectually to to get away from it where where it's possible to do so. Okay, good. And then you also mentioned that the fact that we the kind of the, the big the, the key playing kingdoms of the of the story, Wessex, Mercia, Northumbria, uh, and East Anglia, these these big sort of fairly famous uh, entities if anyone's familiar with the with the period of the uh, the story at all, they will know of those kingdoms. Why do they suck up all the oxygen of of the story? What's 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 what gives them the the power that uh, other kingdoms don't have? Yeah. Well, they they're the bullies, basically. You know, they're they're they're, they're the playground bullies of the, of the Dark Ages. Um, they are responsible, effectively, for hoovering up a lot of these smaller realms. Uh, that's that's one aspect of the the stories that are told in 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 my book. Um, often by naked aggression, sometimes by sort of sleight of hand, almost. What that means is they have a, a longer lived 
footprint, uh, which enables them to really control the narrative. So when we do start to get decent written sources appearing from from bead onwards, really, from the from the mid mid eighth century or early eighth century onward, they are written within kingdoms that have already lasted a good long time, uh, and so the stories that are told are the stories of these realms. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, for example, is produced at the court of King Alfred in its in its uh, earliest form. It may, it may use material that's older than that, of course, but but it is a West Saxon product. Uh, as I say, Bede is is a Northumbrian monk. He's writing very much from a Northumbrian perspective. So that that really fossilizes the idea that that these are the important parts of the country as as these as the as the history develops. But what you're saying in your book, which is really interesting, is the fact that actually there were lots of other kingdoms and realms and, and political entities that existed during this period, which are, uh, are kind of overlooked. And some have been, you know, almost completely lost to our understanding. Others are a bit more famous. But um, you're, you're saying it was a lot more complicated than just these four kingdoms. Yeah, that's right. And I think one thing I didn't say is that there's a lot of luck involved in this. You know, a kingdom like uh, the Kingdom of Essex, for example, which um, at its at its height, comprised not just the county of Essex in eastern England, but also Middlesex, which is the the county that includes the city of London, um, parts of Surrey to the south, parts of Hertfordshire to the north, and so, in, in purely geographical terms, Essex was a was a, a decent sized player, but it also had access to to this enormously important symbolic. Um, Heart in the in the, the the Roman city of Londinium, it had coastal trading links across the North Sea, it had access into the the centre of Britain up the Thames, and so it had all the tools really available to it to become uh, one of these these big powers. But the fact that it didn't and and why it didn't, I think, is uh, something that that something obviously something that the book explores. But it's also worth thinking about that that it's not alone in terms of being a, a kingdom that had potential that that didn't quite quite make it. So if we just sort of shift our perspective a little bit, you can think about how the ultimate shape of, of Britain as a whole could have been very different were it not for a few fairly random factors at times. Yeah. Okay. Now, so I'm I'm guessing that uh, to study these these small lost lost realms that you have done is, is a bit of a tricky business in terms of sources available. If, as you say, like kind of, you know, uh, the sources tend to be a bit later when they come in and they would be um, aligned towards the bigger kingdoms that have already established themselves. So how hard is it to get into, into the story of these places? Yeah, it, it's, it's not easy at all. I mean, I wouldn't say I, I underestimated it when I started writing the book, but, but it was certainly a, a challenging book to write. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that we 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 call some of us persist in calling this period the Dark Ages is is that really uh, certainly for the first two centuries, the fifth fifth and sixth centuries, there is almost no contemporary historical source to guide us whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, as far as sort of uh, difficult and obscure periods of, of British history go, there are there are few that are more obscure than than those two centuries. Uh, all we really have to, to guide us here is a, a, a sermon written by a Welsh monk called Gildas, who sets the, the, the groundwork really for that that standard narrative of, of you know, uh, Germanic conquest that I, I laid out at the beginning. Because he wasn't trying to write an objective history anyway, and he was writing probably the late fifth, maybe very early sixth century. 
but he was writing a, 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 a sermon excoriating the, the rulers and, and ecclesiastical leaders of his own day for, for being bad Christians and, and using this as almost as a parable of, of what happens if you're not a good Christian. You know, these, these, these rotters from overseas will come in and, you know, sack your cities. Um, but so much has then been built on that story. But, I mean, largely speaking, that's it. I mean, in terms of sort of narrative stuff that we've got, that, that, that's it for, for practically two centuries. Um, what we have to go on then is the material that accrues to these places later on and also the archaeology, of course. And, and the archaeology is absolutely crucial for making any sense. And in some ways, it's the archaeology that gives the lie to a lot of that, that standard narrative. And when you say archaeology, we don't, you don't just mean specific sites and artefacts that have been dug up. You're also ploughing uh, landscape archaeology as well to try and that, that discipline of looking at the, at the bigger picture and trying to see what the likes of field boundaries and, and that sort of thing can tell us about the story, right? Yeah, I mean, up to a point. I mean, sadly, what we don't have for this period are things like charter bounds, which would be wonderful. We have those for later early medieval history in Britain. We can actually plot, you know, the the, the administrative layout of of, um, of uh, political units. Um, there's a certain amount that you can back project from those, but we can assume that, that some of these, these regions... Um, although they don't appear in contemporary sources, the way they appear later on are probably fossilised from an earlier earlier age. So things like uh, diocesan boundaries, those bishoprics were established possibly in the 7th century uh, and un- unlikely to have changed in very substantial ways. And so where you have something like um, the Kingdom of Huiche, for example, uh, where the, the bishop was installed in the 7th century, when we then have the, the, the diocesan boundaries written down later on, we can largely assume that those boundaries correspond roughly to the kingdom of the same name. Um, it's not a perfect method, <laughs> clearly, um, but but it but it, it it's often all we have to go on. There are a few scraps as well, like documents like the tribal hidage, which is a probably a, a, a tribute. Um, it's probably a document designed to calculate the amount of tribute that, that an overlord could generate from from Britain, and it was probably produced in either Mercia or Northumbria. And it lists kingdoms and tribal groups um, alongside a figure that denotes the number of hides each one possesses, a hide being a unit of land that notionally could support a single homestead, farmstead. So it's the economic potential of a region, basically. And these range from, you know, many thousands for the, for the bigger kingdoms down to a few hundred for some of the small fry. And many of the names on that list, some of them appear in the book as kingdoms, but many others are simply just names on a list with a number. You know, we don't even know, really know where they were at all. Um, now, that's very useful because it gives us a sense of sort of relative heft, if you like, the economic heft in, in the period that the document was written, which is 8th century, I think it's probably probably where we should locate it. But it also has a geographical sense to how it's organised. So, for example, again, the, the Elmet Sitna, the, the, the Elmet dwellers, El, the kingdom of Elmet being, being one of those that I've written about, is situated between the Peck Sitna, the, the people of the Peak District, uh, and the people of Lindsay uh, in, in North Lincolnshire. So from that alone, we can sort of work out roughly where they were somewhere, you know, West Riding of Yorkshire. 
So a, a, a good opportunity for a bit of detective work, but uh, but, but quite hard to, to work out where you're at. Now, okay, so let's let's dip into a couple of these uh, these these kingdoms that you talk about. We're not going to go through all of them because you talk about quite a few um, interesting places, and, and people need to read the book to to get chapter and verse on that. But let's just pick a couple and just talk a, a little bit about them. So you mentioned um, Hwitcha. Is that the pronunciation Hwitcha? Oh yes. I well. <laughs> No one really knows, I think, is, is the honest answer to that. It's, it's huikche or huikche, something along those lines. But um, the origins of the term itself are, are a bit a bit vexed. So, you know, whether it comes from, from Welsh or whether it comes from Old English, not, there's not, not really any consensus around that. And the pronunciation probably would be different depending on which way sure. you go with it. Okay, let's stick with that. Okay, spelling wise, H W I C C E um, is is the is the spelling, and that and that's um I'm currently I'm sat here on the on the border of Gloucestershire, right in North Wiltshire, um so uh, I think we're not too far away perhaps from from the boundaries of of that area, and I think this is where you kind of grew up somewhere uh, around this area, so this one's quite close to home. So introduce us to the to this to this kingdom and what happened to it. Sure. So so the kingdom of Quiche. Um, as I've already mentioned, we, we we kind of have a sense of its its proportions from the the later diocese uh, that was that was formed um, for the bishops of, of Wheatshire. Um, core territory is the county of Gloucestershire and the county of Worcestershire. It did also incorporate bits of Warwickshire as well, and possibly some bits of North Wiltshire. So, so you you may even have you know, be in, be in sort of the ancient kingdom of Wheatshire now, um, at least at least until the West Saxons kind of stamped their <laughs> their authority on that that corner of it um so it's very much a kingdom sort of defined by uh the river seven and its floodplain uh the vale of evesham uh and the cotswold hills running uh south to north now what's interesting about that that area oh and i should say the the witchwood forest which which takes its name from the kingdom uh, Wheatshire, uh which is just off to off to the east um on the edge of oxfordshire uh, and probably formed the boundary of the kingdom on on that side. And what's really interesting about this region, certainly the, the the southern part of it, is that it was one of the most prosperous and and developed parts of Roman Britain. So there's fabulous archaeology from uh, Cirencester, Gloucester, Bath, um, demonstrating the the enormous wealth and economic sophistication of of those urban centres in the Roman period. Uh, but also some wonderful villas that have been excavated at places like Woodchester, for example, with extraordinary mosaic floors and underfloor heating, you know, hypercourts, and, and 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 the full the full sort of elaboration of of Roman aristocratic country living. Um, so, how we go from that picture to to what we what we find later on, which is a, 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 a an apparently Anglo-Saxon in inverted commas kingdom very much under Mercian overlordship, is is a difficult um, but quite compelling uh, bit of detective work. And when when does this this kingdom sort of start to fade out of the of the record? Then we start to lose it. Well, it's it's an interesting thing because it almost starts to dwindle the moment we start to see it. Um, the first king we 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 know of. We, we've got a few names that who apparently belong to a, a Huichian royal family, but the first sort of substantive king that we know of is a, a chap called Osric, who's remembered as the founder of, of Gloucester Cathedral. Um, and he's recognised as being a king, a full king in his own right, but each successive generation, as they're named in, in charters produced 
produced in in Huiche and also in Mercia, these kings become progressively lesser in authority relative to the Mercians. So they, they start to be called subregulus, uh, little little under kings. Um, eventually they're demoted to to dukes, you know, the origin of of, of the modern duke. Um, I think the last or one of the last kings of Huiche is, is afforded a certain degree of rule over his own people, which is a really ambiguous phrase. So this is a constant... I know, it's a (laughs) sort of thin gruel, isn't it? Um, So it's a whittling away of of Huichin authority, which really by the mid-8th century has effectively gone entirely, and it it becomes a province of of Mercia and the the Mercian, the wider Mercian realm, which is expanding rampantly all over southern Britain at that point. Okay. Um, what about? I mean, you mentioned Elmet earlier. Um, what about that one? T- tell us about that uh, that place. So again, I mean, Elmet is one of those that that we 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 see it at its moment of of, of dissolution. The, the 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 only certain king we know of, a King Kiridig of Elmet, we meet in uh, uh, Bede's history being being driven out effectively. Um, or rather, no, I, I should I should correct myself there. It's not Bede doesn't actually tell that story exactly. He tells he tells the story that leads up to these events, but the Historia Bretonum, the ninth, uh, ninth century Welsh source, describes King Ceredig being driven out uh, of his kingdom uh, and, and later later dying. So we see Elmet sort of snuffed out in the sort of the power politics that, that, are, that are taking place around Northumbrian and East Anglian sort of machinations, diplomatic machinations. So everything we really know about it has to be pulled together from very disparate bits of source material. Place names give us an indication of its its sort of eastern boundaries, and there are some fabulous uh, Welsh um, poetic references to the kingdom. Um, the one other thing that we know about King Ceredig is that he was remembered as as the son of a, a chap called Gwalog, and. Gwalog was remembered as as a, a, a very serious player in, in British politics in general. You know, his, the, the praise poems that were written for him describe him as as being a um, uh, the lawgiver of Elmet, which people have interpreted as meaning that he was at least an overlord, if not a king, of this realm. So, although the sources are very difficult and the poetry may or may not date to the the time that it, it purports to, it was certainly remembered that that people from this central region, the southern Pennine region, once wielded a significant amount of, of clout, um, but we only see it when it's when it's failing. Hmm. And, and for our listeners who aren't familiar with British geography, so the southern Pennines now is, is firmly in England, it's a, a bit of England. Um, is this, is this a, a, an Anglo-Saxon kingdom, for want of a better word, mindful of, of what you said earlier, or is this a, a, a British kingdom? Oh no! This is a good good point to clarify. All the evidence we have indicates that this was a British realm, by which I mean uh, a region that was inhabited by people who spoke a, a Britonic Celtic language and whose customs and personal names were uh, British in that sense. Um, we get a, a bit of a flavour of, of this from some of the place names that have survived, which are old English place names. So they're names that were coined by uh, an incoming group who spoke a different language. And they they named a number of places as in, in relation to the words, their words, for Welsh or Britain. Um, so 
I think of any good examples, but but certainly the the the, the elements, the, the place name elements are derived from the old English words whale, which means foreigner, or, or Cymru, which is the self-designation of, of Britons for 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 themselves. Um, so it was certainly seen from an outside perspective as a place where Britons lived, and that's that's significant. Still to come on the History Extra podcast, uh, and that's a that's an aspect of of Dark Age Britain that I think people often lose sight of. It, it's seen as sort of a, a period of just pure kind of chaos and turmoil and barbarism and you know, mud huts and savageness. But but that's not the picture we get from somewhere like Dunnonia at all. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Do you want to pick one more of the of the sort of the realms that you talk about? One of your I don't know your favourite one, or, or just one that you think is particularly interesting. I like Dumnonia. I think Dumnonia is quite quite unique. Actually, it, it, it illustrates some things that are, are perhaps unusual. I mean, in particular, given that during the Roman period it was one of the least Romanized corners of of Britain. Good stark contrast to Huitshire, for example, which isn't a million miles away. We should, it becomes, we should clarify, where, where is Dumnonia? Where, where are oh, we Dumnonia, yes, sorry, I should say. Dumnonia is the, the effectively now the counties of Cornwall and Devon. So it's that that uh, southwest peninsula that, that sticks out like a tail from the, from the bottom of the island. And um, yes, I, I, as I say, in stark contrast to, to Huitia, Dumnonia becomes one of the most sophisticated and apparently 
Roman corners in a period that is generally perceived to be not at all Roman. Um, By which I mean we find large quantities of imported Mediterranean pottery, fine tableware at sites like Tintagel. We find amphorae that almost certainly contain wine and olive oil, uh, again, very large quantities. Um, There seems to have been a a ready adoption of um, Roman forms of Christianity from the iconography and the types of saints who are being venerated in the peninsula um, that is unusual uh, for the rest of southern Britain at this period, most certainly, certainly in the 6th century. And so what we see there is a, is a, a community who were very self-consciously, it would seem, wanting to associate themselves with the memory, or not even the memory, the ongoing reality of the Roman Empire as it still existed in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean, and forging real-time connections with the rest of, of Southern Europe. Uh, and that's, a, that's an aspect of, of Dark Age Britain that I think people often lose sight of. It, it's seen as sort of a, a period of just pure sort of chaos and turmoil and barbarism and you know, mud huts and savageness. But, but that's not the picture we get from somewhere like Dumnonia at all. And, and, and we can get glimmers of that from, from elsewhere along that, um, that western seaboard as well. And you make the good point in the book, don't you? That um, though, though we we imagine that the the Western Roman Empire was was riven by catastrophe in the start of the fifth century, and there was all sorts of terrible things going on. The Eastern Roman Empire was still a, a going concern, and and uh, and and had um, had all the all the trappings of civilization still 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 cracking on. And Dumnonia was able to to hook into that. Um, uh, it, it appears mm, mm, exactly, and I think. You know that 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 realization that that uh, Constantinople remained this beacon of of by contrast to what was going on in in Western Europe at the time, extraordinary wealth uh, and civilization in its literal sense um, must have been a, an enormous stimulus to the imagination and the the aspirations and ambitions of rulers across the West. Um, uh, it's just uh, what, uh, amazing that we can actually see it tangibly in somewhere like Dumnonia, which is one of the furthest flung corners. And as I say, you know, formerly one of the least Roman. So, okay, so uh, that's a, a tour of just a, a few of the kingdoms you talk about. Um, so what you're doing basically is you're complicating the picture. You're, you're explaining that there's lots of different things going on, lots of different experiences for people through this period, the, the Dark Ages, as, as you've talked uh, about. Um, so lots of, it's a much more complicated picture than we imagine. Is there... Can we can we sort of bring it back together again and simplify things a bit? Is there a theme in the way these kingdoms, these realms, die off? Is it all? Do they all get swallowed up by their bigger neighbours in the same sort of way? Uh, sort of depressingly, I think that is a big part of the story. That is an undeniable aspect to it. That it is the most aggressive, the most predatory, uh, the most willing to use force that that survive the longest. Um, but in terms of the detail of how these kingdoms develop, the identities that they form, the complexities of, of that, that, uh, that, that pathfinding exercise out of the, the collapse of, of a Roman Britain and towards something else, there really isn't a, a, an overarching narrative that you can, you can knit together. And in a way, that is the, the main message I, I, I think the book seeks to convey that we can't just impose a, a one-size-fits-all 
storyline onto this period. It's lots of people working together and against each other to try to find some sort of new world, some new way of doing business. Uh, and they find all sorts of different solutions. Um, some of them work. Some of them don't work at all. Others are, end up a, a messy compromise. But we see by the later uh, later Anglo-Saxon period, when we can start to call it an Anglo-Saxon period, is a, a rationalization and a, a development of these sort of much more monolithic identities that override a lot of the regional differences and the untidiness and the, the messiness of the, the process that had got them there. Does it? Does the, the these disparate narratives tell us anything about the sort of the perceived ethnic identities of of people um, in Britain at the time? When I've talked on on a podcast about this topic before, um, experts have kind of said, "Well." Uh, ethnicity is is kind of a bit of a modern construct, and we get a bit hung up about it, and we should we should not worry about it so much. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true to a certain extent. Although, having said that, you know, it's undeniable that 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 Bede drew very stark boundaries between the English and the British, uh, and and his narrative is, is 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 founded around that 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 split, and arguably. It's his. It's that that narrative written in the eighth century that set the tone for much of the of the uh, the division in within Britain that, that continues to this day. The way that people think of themselves as either being English or being, uh, you know, Celtic in inverted commas. Um, yeah, it, it's a difficult one. I think what I would say is, whilst whilst ethnicity and the way we think of it now probably didn't exist people did have a draw to finding a sense of identity which isn't exactly the same thing and they were pulling together scraps of 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 um scraps of tradition or of memory or of mythology to build something new and it, and it could be very local um as I said uh, a moment ago, I think that the, the development of these much bigger kind of super regional identities is something that, that comes later on. It, it overrides a lot of these localized um, these localized identities. But what we see in, in the in the burial archaeology, for example, is an extraordinary sort of mishmash of, of different themes and imagery. You know, something like the Prittlewell tomb from from uh, near south end or, or or even the you know the more famous sutton who mound one burial is a uh, an amazing kind of kaleidoscope of objects and images from you know, the late roman empire the the north sea world the baltic the the, the eastern mediterranean the frankish worlds from 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 ireland from the west of britain brought together in these extremely elaborate mounds to assemble a sense of a, of a new identity which which pulls in all sorts of different directions and i think that's going on everywhere but it's just the the exact balance that that perhaps differs from from one place to the next okay that's a good way of looking at it so i so i i'm willing to bet that a lot of our listeners and i'm sure i'll get some emails if i'm wrong won't have heard of the likes of elmet and uh, hawiche you know those will be new names to them but do those realms, do those lost kingdoms still resonate or echo in any way today? Can we still find any evidence of these uh, identities that you talked about? Do they still have any any value, any power? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that I think they really do. I mean, it, some, sometimes it's it's quite obvious. You know, the the uh, the kingdom of Essex retains its name in the county of Essex, and uh, I, I'm sure there are many people 
from Essex who who feel a very strong attachment to their that 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 sense of a, a deep rooted um, history that goes back back to to the very dawn of 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 that that period of English ethnogenesis, if you like. Um, likewise, in in Sussex, the Kingdom of Sussex became the, the two counties of Sussex. I suppose the same is is sort of true for for Powys in uh, East Wales, um, although modern Powys isn't exactly where <laughs> the, the original Kingdom of Powys necessarily was. Um, but still, the, the name has a resonance and a, and, a, and, a, and a history to it. I think there are more hidden. Um, there's a more hidden sort of echoes of, of some of these kingdoms as well. I mean, I think of the, the very independent, um, the very independent streak of, of, of Cornwall, for example, which many Cornish people don't regard themselves as in any way English and only uneasily fit within the sort of political boundaries of, of, of the United Kingdom. Uh, And that has its roots going back to the, the kingdom of, of Dumnonia, although Devon was was much more thoroughly anglicised, Cornwall held out for longer and, and retains that that distinctiveness. I think others not so much. The, the Kingdom of Regid has left very little trace of itself. We're not really even sure exactly where it was. Um, but in other ways that are the less less obvious, I think the geography itself defines some of these regions in ways that are, that are still hard to deny. So. North Lincolnshire, for example, was a kingdom, the Kingdom of Lindsay, which was, was cut off by marshes, fens, the sea, uh, to form a, a, almost an island of its own. And there, there's still a quality, although the fens have been drained, there's still a sense in which the, the, that part of the country has a, a distinctive geographical separateness to, to some of the, the regions around it. Um, and likewise, Huiche, again, which is very much a, a, a sort of uh, a, a valley depression surrounded by, you know, the Cotswolds and the Malvern Hills. So you can you can really see in the landscape the the shape of it still imprinted there. Excellent. Well, I'm 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 soon to be walking the Cotswold Way, which I think goes through the the territory of the Weeche. So I'll see if I can find any te- any evidence of them as as I as I go down there. Oh yeah, uh, excellent. Now, look, look to finish up. Um, uh, just just a, a silly little question to to finish. Um, so, kind of these these kingdoms are are kind of the underdogs, aren't they? They're the little guys that disappear versus you know the might of Wessex and Mercia. Um, did you write about them because you 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 side for, with the underdogs? What what's, what are you, what are you trying to achieve <laughs> with this book? Do you know what? I, there's a part of me that does. There's a part of me that that gets tired of hearing about you know how great Alfred was and. And the the, the myth making that was spun about his ancestors that give rise to this notion of, of inevitability about the way that the history progressed. And I think, well, okay, fine, but but what about the Kingdom of Sussex? What was happening there? So the the, the thing is that get, that gets forgotten is that just because B didn't write very much about Sussex didn't mean that nothing was happening in Sussex for all of those those centuries. Something was, and and it, that deserves our attention just as much as what was happening in in Jarrow or or, or in um, Winchester. So yes, part of part of it is that part of it is is just sort of feeling, feeling of feeling aggrieved for these little little kingdoms that just don't get don't get the time of day. Um, but I, but it's also there's also a broader point to make, and that that's about how we tell history and, and, and what we're trying to do with with writing history in the first place. Um, and I think too often we can fall into the trap of 
back projecting from where we are to find stories that make sense of, of that and and ignoring the the failed experiments and the the wrong turns and the missed opportunities but to get a, a, a real understanding of, of history you've got to look at the things that didn't work out as well as the things that did and so it's it's making that case as well brilliant well thomas thomas williams um thank you very much for your time uh, lost realms uh, a histories of britain from the romans to the vikings is published now and as i said it's a great read so do do go and check it out and have a read thomas thank you very much for your time Thank you very much for having me. That was Thomas Williams. His book, Lost Realms, Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings, is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. 